0: Hi everyone, I'm Ian McLaughlin, a PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: And I'm Beau, someone who knows enough science to make sure Ian doesn't get away with spouting nonsense.
0: (laughs) Okay, Uh, I suppose that's right. Uh, Beau is a material scientist.
1: That's right, a scientist of all the materials.
0: (laughs) Okay, right, fair enough.
1: (laughs) And Okay, so what are we going to talk about today?
0: Well, today we're going to discuss some of the things that affect the development of babies.
1: I assume you say quote-unquote some... Because I imagine there's a ton of things that can influence the development of a baby.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, at least today, we're going to stick to two primary things, diet and pollution.
1: Well, I'm no biologist, I'll admit, but I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to eat pollution as a baby.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yep, podcast over. (laughs) No, I, I, I mean the roles that maternal diet and fetal exposure to pollution can play in some of the important developmental processes that occur as a fetus develops.
1: Oh, yeah. Those are the kinds of things that definitely provoke anxiety in me and I'm sure a lot of other uh, moms and potential moms as well. Like, should a pregnant mother only eat supernatural, unprocessed food? Or if she lives in a city, should she basically line her windows with air filters?
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it provokes anxiety in me, too. So so yeah, that's what we're gonna talk about today. And to be honest, there's a ton more that I read about. So if we have any time left, I'll just bring up as much as makes sense before we get tired.
1: All right, sounds good. Okay, but before we get started, you have some big news, right?
0: Uh, well, sort of big news.
1: Okay, well, I mean, it's big news. Ian got permission to defend at the end of December. That's right. So for folks outside of science, getting permission to defend means that a panel of senior scientists reviews the work that you've done over the course of your PhD.
0: After you do a pretty long presentation of only some of the work you did, mostly just the stuff that actually worked.
1: Right. And so they review the work that you've done and judge you and (laughs) decide if you've done enough to have the opportunity to proceed with the last uh, sort of stretch of a PhD.
0: Yeah. So if you're used to video games, it's sort of like passing the level right before the boss level. Or if you're younger and play a game like PUBG or Fortnite or Apex Legends. Uh,
1: Those totally went over my head. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I've heard of Fortnite. Is that no longer what the cool kids are playing?
0: Get, that's right. Get with it, Bob. Yeah, yeah. Out of the loop. <laughs> I know. So it's it's sort of like um, getting down to only two players left. Or if you played Star Fox on N64 like I did, it's like beating Area 6 before facing Andross. Or if you...
1: Well, I mean, okay, you can continue, but <laughs> okay. I still will not understand you. <laughs>
0: right. Well, so it, it's basically the point at which you have permission to cease all experiments and just begin writing your dissertation. In my case, I'm still currently wrapping up a last handful of experiments, and I hope to squeeze in a few other quickies to answer some smaller side questions that I've had for a while. But but yeah, hopefully going to wrap up in the next few months.
1: Ooh, so prepare yourselves for di- Dr. McLaughlin.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm definitely not counting any chickens yet. I still have to actually defend my thesis.
1: Fair enough. Uh, But before we get back to babies, we ought to say that if you've listened to a few episodes of the podcast and have enjoyed it, or if you're just checking out the podcast for the first time and enjoy it, we'd love it if you could give us a nice rating on iTunes, please.
0: Yeah, we we know it's kind of awkward, and they definitely don't make it as easy as it could be, but we certainly appreciate it.
1: Okay, back to babies. Right,
0: well... To begin, there was a study published in the British Medical Journal, or BMJ, in 2017 that evaluated the importance of the maternal diet during pregnancy for the cognitive and behavioral development of their children.
1: All right, well, exactly the kind of study I had in mind.
0: Right, exactly. And I should say that this is a meta-review. So this is a review of a collection of many studies that all probed this question of maternal diet and child development. And so before getting into the details of the review, they highlighted the difficulties that are central to this effort. And chief among them were a handful of issues.
1: Oh, just a handful.
0: Yeah, but but I think most of these um, are actually pretty intuitive when you think about how long studies of child development have to span. So, you know, for example, over the years, topics of interest have evolved with various questions focused on specific. Concerns being more common during specific generations,
1: like when vegetable and tuna Jello was popular in the fifties. <laughs> yeah,
0: oh my god, don't get me started. So I, w- I was chatting with a friend of mine um, about how much foods evolved over the years, and it inspired me to look for peculiar food trends over the years. And the nineteen fifties, in particular, seems like a fertile period of just innovative combinations. <laughs>
1: I totally know what you mean. Do you remember any examples?
0: Well, so, okay, there are quite a number of um, combinations that would probably offend our millennial palates. Um, And it's worth noting that, you know, they might be purely nostalgic of a better time among some listeners. Uh, But uh, anyways, one was the Frosted Ribbon Loaf.
1: Loaf. I mean, I like meatloaf.
0: I sort of feel like um, meatloaf is one of the survivors of this era, but um, this would have to be a distant cousin of the meatloaf. It was a combination of ham, eggs, and frosting.
1: Oh, it's like a ham and egg cake.
0: <laughs> yeah. And of course, eggs are used to make cakes, right? But it's not like if, if they're not mixed into the batter, I feel like a crucial error has been made.
1: Agreed. Any others?
0: I feel like a lot of the combinations boiled down to... No uh, pun
1: intended. Right,
0: right. Wow, well, gotcha. Boiled down to the application of gelatin to recipes that have been would have been totally fine without the gelatin. Yeah, gotcha. So, like, one was um, a lime and cheese salad.
1: Ah, the classic combination of lime and cheese. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. But wait, you have yet to hear of the ultimate delicacy. The Super Supper Salad Loaf.
1: It's a lot of alliteration. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so that sounds lovely. Salad sounds great. And a Super Supper version of salad sounds like it'd be super healthy, right?
0: Well, you know, I agree. Uh, But in this case, we're talking about a blend. And by blend, I mean blended combination of celery, tomato soup, and crackers.
1: (laughs) So... A totally normal salad.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that combined with the super salad loaf, which is, from what I can see, a ton of bologna, mayo, and gelatin.
1: Mmm, <laughs> yummy. Okay, so I think we're all on the same page when it comes to evolving dietary standards over time.
0: That's right. Um, what used to be considered the peak of health only a few decades ago is now considered like a wild combination of ingredients that seem incomprehensible, at least to some of us. And by the way, perhaps there's some listeners right now saying, hey, that's literally what I'm about to eat or planning to cook.
1: Right. Like the fact that people used to consider lobster seafood for the lower classes.
0: Exactly. And so while lobster is, of course, objectively delicious when combined with butter, the combination of gelatin and bologna is just aberrant. Sure.
1: Objective, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I sort of get it, right? Perhaps the future me will make fun of the current me for reveling in the consumption of an ocean cockroach with an absurd fat delivery system.
1: (laughs) I mean, the current me sort of makes fun of the current you
0: for that. (laughs) Fair enough.
1: Okay, but I get your point. Given how much dietary standards change over time, studies of what mothers eat particularly studies that span multiple decades, will have to contend with the fact that diets change quite a bit over time.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so not only do the dietary standards evolve over time, but the questions that scientists might ask about maternal nutrition also therefore evolve.
1: I see. So while studies might investigate whether diets that are rich in saturated fats, for example, are beneficial for developing fetuses, in the 70s, maybe they asked if diets that were high in greens or dairy were good, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's that's basically the idea. The categories have evolved. The recommended dietary food groups have famously, or perhaps infamously, evolved over the years. But suffice it to say that there was once considered to be the optimally healthy diet has changed over the years. And the scientific inquiry into the effect of healthy versus unhealthy maternal diets um, on child development has likewise evolved.
1: This is the type of thing that makes me feel like we'll never know enough about nutrition.
0: Yeah, tell me about it. What do you mean? Well, I mean, so as a jaded PhD candidate in one of the biomedical sciences, and emphasis on jaded, it was difficult to anticipate how difficult of a science human biology really is. Anyway, all this to say that you know, standards of what it means to be healthy have changed over the years, and so particularly when it comes to a topic like child development, the science is still really in a nascent stage.
1: All right. Well, I'm sure there's at least some productive work that's been done. Let's get to that.
0: Sure. So this study um, published in uh, the BMJ basically found, and again, this was you know a review of a bunch of different of a bunch of different studies. Um, they noted again that difficulty of studying this over such a long period of time. Um, But they noted that a better maternal diet did have a small, though significant, association with child neural development, and this corroborates another review that focused on the association between uh, maternal fish intake and child cognitive outcomes, Um, but but it actually wasn't as big of of an effect as uh, perhaps they were expecting. What they did find, however, was um, the importance of breastfeeding in the earliest stages of life. And so here's a quote, associations between breastfeeding and better cognitive development, higher IQ, better educational attainment and language development, as well as a lower risk of having ADHD, end quote, has been found. (laughs) Um, And so basically they emphasized the important role that um, infant and early life diet has on uh, neuronal development and sort of cognitive development rather than, you know, the dominant importance of maternal diet.
1: Well, that certainly seems to relieve some pressure on pregnant mothers. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and so you, know, so you have nine months to kind of get your diet plan in game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Um And then when it comes to breastfeeding, we always hear nowadays that breastfeeding is encouraged and that's important. Um, but now it seems like there's this study that shows that it's, it is related to neurodevelopment.
0: Yeah, that it, and it's remember it's a collection of studies. So yeah, there, there's you know something close to a consensus that if you can, if you're in a position where it's not prohibitively difficult, and of course for some women it is prohibitively difficult, um, but if you can breastfeed, then it's it's worth the uh, it's worth the struggle. <laughs> and you know th- there was another quote um, from the study that that stuck out with regards to breastfeeding. And so here's the quote: This suggests that a better maternal diet quality might serve as a protective. Or beneficial factor to a larger degree for children who are not breastfed or breastfed less than the recommended period. End quote. And so, you know, once again, it, it, the role of breastfeeding seems to play this this you know dominant role. But if um, a child is not being breastfed, then the diet that the mother consumes, and then ostensibly that the child is also consuming, uh, then begins to play a, a bigger uh, role in in child development.
1: So. Just to be clear, we're talking about diet as it affects not just, like, your physical health, but the development of your brain.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're largely only talking about the development of the brain. The physical stuff is, is you know, another issue, um, I'm sure, quite related. But, yeah, we're specifically talking about cognitive development um, in, you know, earliest stages of life.
1: And that's really interesting because a lot of, I mean, when you go to your pediatrician in early life, you know, what they focus on are things like weight gain or height like head size yeah right and you know it's so difficult to measure neurodevelopment in a small child i mean you have some milestones right but a lot of that you know it's like oh well you just need to play with your baby more right get them to babble right and i don't think there's enough conversation about how how what to
0: expect and how to maybe enhance
1: right through diet
0: through, through diet yeah and perhaps even interaction um, and you know perhaps a lot of that is because most of that stuff is just still on autopilot um, and you know there's not many ways that you can intentionally influence it um, or you know maybe that's not the case uh, you know, that study has to be done um, but uh, but in any case you know it just seems that the role of diet you know let's say maternal diet during pregnancy isn't as big as as you might suspect in, you know, this sort of these early stages of development. And the role of diet seems to play a more important role after birth um, if the child's not being breastfed.
1: And of course, with diet, you should always talk to your doctor, and <laughs> yeah. follow their recommendations, not ours.
0: Yeah. Don't eat frosted supper loaves. <laughs> I Froasted. Rosa? Froast. Froasted, frosted? What is that? Frosted. Frosted, frosted. <laughs> right. Um, okay. Don't eat that either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyways, um, I suspect one of the primary concerns that a lot of new parents have revolves around the effects of pollution on a pregnancy. And for a while now, attention has been paid towards potential link between environmental risk factors and pollution in particular and the increased incidences of autism. Ugh.
1: And I feel like this is one of those things that gnaws at the back of people's minds who are trying to have a baby and this is something that they really can do so much to minimize.
0: That they, Yeah, that, that there's not much that, that you can really do, right? I mean, you know, you can try and mitigate it with whatever, like air filters or, you know, not playing your power plants. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this is just a part of your environment that, you know, you can't really influence on your own at least.
1: Well, unless you're willing to move to like the middle of a...
0: Right, Exactly. Grass. Like a farm. Yeah. <laughs> but even then, and we'll talk no. about farms, you know, in, in a second. But yeah, I mean, I know exactly what you mean. And of course, um, there are many forms of pollution, right? And perhaps one of the most ubiquitous forms of pollution is airborne pollution. It just so happens that a collaboration between groups in Canada, uh, McGill to be specific, and China and Beijing to be specific, followed 124 kids diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder compared to um, 1240 kids who weren't in Shanghai.
1: And it's worth noting that Shanghai is one of the world's largest cities. So I don't know what year the study occurred, but, you know, it's probably Shanghai is probably pretty densely populated.
0: Yeah, like like among the definitely one of the biggest cities. Um, And, you know, at least according to uh, the World Urbanization Projects, which is a UN publication, Shanghai was definitely one of the most populous cities in the world at the time, which was in June of 2014
1: wow. Okay, so not that long ago.
0: That's right. And um, so while the reporting of this study leaves a bit to be desired, to be honest, uh, to say the least when it comes to the citations, (laughs) the original study did some solid work in characterizing and quantifying what exposure to airborne pollutants might look like. And by that, I mean discussing airborne pollutants on a level that's more complex than just general pollution.
1: So how do they measure it?
0: So, okay, so they use aerodynamic diameter at various scales from less than one micron to about 10 microns. And they grade this using categories like PM1, 2.5, and 10.
1: Which I assume correspond to different micron-sized pollutants?
0: Yeah, that's right. And um, the contribution of this study was an attention paid to a smaller pollutant particle size, um, which, you know, they identify as lower than one micron.
1: Okay, so in other words, they're seeing if there might be an effect of super small molecules that are produced in pollution that previous studies might not have caught.
0: Yeah, that's right, exactly. And um, here's a quote from one of the authors of the study, uh, Associate Professor Yu Ming Guo, quote, The serious health effects of air pollution are well documented, suggesting there is no safe level of exposure. Even exposure to very small amounts of fine particulate matter have been linked to preterm births, delayed learning, and a range of serious health conditions, including heart disease. Despite the fact that smaller particles are more harmful, there is no global standard or policy for PM1 air pollution. Given that PM1 accounts for about 80% of PM2.5 pollution in China alone, further studies on its health effects and toxicology are needed to inform policymakers to develop standards for the control of PM1 air pollution in the future.
1: Wow. Okay, so if we accept Guo's numbers, the smallest sized particle size composes the majority of the pollution that's normally measured.
0: Right. Yeah, the vast majority, 80% in China. And while you know different countries burn different types of fuel for energy, I don't see any reason to uh, suspect uh, that composition would vary all that widely in different parts of the world.
1: Sure, makes sense.
0: Okay, well, if you think about the differences in the physics that guide how these molecules are distributed throughout the environment, and more importantly, the human body, this tiny size translates to greater ease in gaining access to various compartments of the body.
1: And by compartment, I assume you just mean different parts of the body, yeah, right? Yeah,
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it's just a term we use to describe various anatomical divisions. Well, really, divisions of body fluids in particular. Um, but we're talking about things like blood or cavities between organs or the lymphatic system or cerebral spinal fluid.
1: Okay. So I think I see what you mean here. I remember way back (laughs) when we were talking about the basics of neuroscience, we discussed the blood-brain barrier and how it's not exactly a barrier in the way we normally think of barriers.
0: Right. It's not like a wall.
1: Right. It's more like a bunch of cells.
0: The same cells that compose our vascular system.
1: Right. Like arteries and veins. So... Those types of cells, uh, but just packed together much tighter to make the blood-brain barrier uh, than they are in the circulatory system outside of the brain.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Um, Those blood cells that compose our uh, vascular system um, have basically tiny little holes between them called fenestrations, um, and they allow for molecules to move in and out of blood vessels.
1: And our blood-brain barrier doesn't really have them, or at least... Uh, there are fewer of those little holes. And mm-hmm. so I can see how smaller molecules might have an easier time passing through these little holes like those fenestrations than larger molecules, because the larger molecules s- simply physically wouldn't fit through.
0: Yeah, that's 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 probably a good example of why these smaller sized um, pollutant molecules have an easier time entering the vascular system through the lungs, at which point they can be distributed pretty widely throughout the body.
1: Also kind of like when people smoke cigarettes, the nicotine molecules, I imagine, uh, need to be able to be absorbed in the lungs for people to get any effect from the cigarettes.
0: Yeah, that's right. And so there have been various studies of the effects of airborne pollution on pregnancy, as well as um, nine months after pregnancy in the U.S., And there's been a correlation between increased exposure and increased likelihoods of autism spectrum disorder. Another study specifically in uh, the Los Angeles.
1: Which I'm sure has the worst air quality in the country. (laughs) (laughs) If not the worst, then definitely towards the top.
0: Yeah, that's right. Actually, I was kind of curious about that. And um, it turns out that the American Lung Association puts out an annual report that's sort of like the State of the Union, but focused entirely on air quality. And they call it State of the Air.
1: Sounds appropriate. Right.
0: Okay. And um, so they actually break down these measurements into type of pollutant, how chronically elevated this pollution is, and conveniently, pollutant particle size.
1: Okay. Sure. That makes sense. It's not like air pollution is a specific element on the periodic table or anything. Right, Right. I mean, I imagine different sources of pollution produce different types of molecules.
0: Exactly. And so when it comes to ozone, which is one of the things they measure, Los Angeles was ranked number one.
1: Okay. No surprise there.
0: But when they measure just year round pollutant or p- pollution of molecules that are PM 2.5 size.
1: So not quite as small as the smallest category uh, in this recent study we're talking about, but a, a size bigger.
0: Yeah. And so I was actually surprised to see that a city in Alaska, Fairbanks, was at the top.
1: That's really odd. I oh, guess yeah. I don't know enough about Fairbanks to know why that might be the case.
0: Yeah. Same here. I, um, I don't know what kind of industries are there. But then as we go down the list, we see cities that aren't quite as surprising, at least to me, like Bakersfield and Los Angeles are up towards the top. In fact, there are quite a few cities in California that rank towards the top.
1: Well, I know that Bakersfield is a city with a lot of oil and gas activity, so that makes sense to me.
0: Yeah. And then um, there are other cities like Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Houston, Detroit, Atlanta, Indianapolis, Las Vegas, and so on are all in the top 24.
1: That makes sense. These are all really big cities. So how does Philly rank?
0: Unfortunately, not great. It's not in the top 10, and it looks like they can't measure just Philly, but also like Camden and and Redding, which are sort of nearby.
1: Okay, so more like the general metropolitan area. I mean, Camden is right across the river.
0: That's right. Um, And so, well, we're all at number 12 in 2018. Ugh, it's depressing. I know, right? It is kind of depressing because Philly actually has pretty clean water compared to a lot of other cities. But, and this is probably a conversation for another day, there's a group at Penn that's been going around to various neighborhoods in the Philadelphia area that's been finding that there's definitely some variability in water quality. And just because it's the same municipal water source um, you know, from the city doesn't mean that every house in the area that's fed by those water sources has clean water coming out of their taps.
1: And that is nightmare stuff there. That's right. Uh, okay. So, but when it comes to air quality, maybe people in Philly or at least people who are planning on having kids or or are pregnant, should get some air purifiers.
0: I think so. Um, You know, it couldn't hurt. I imagine some air purifiers are way more complicated and elaborate and therefore expensive than others, like ones that have things like HEPA filters and submicron-sized pollutant molecules, activated carbon, and and so on. And I just don't know how effective these various purifiers are. But if you have the money to spare, rather than going out to a coffee coffee shop or bar or whatever, just save what you'd spend there and get yourself a well-reviewed air purifier.
1: (laughs) Yeah, instead of lattes, get clean air. Yeah, right. (laughs) All right. Seems reasonable. Well, I don't know if we finished discussing the study in Shanghai, so I assume that they found a correlation between air pollution and autism spectrum disorders?
0: That's right. Um, And so here's a quote from the lead author of the study. Quote, The developing brains of young children are more vulnerable to toxic exposures in the environment, and several studies have suggested that this could impact brain function and the immune system. These effects could explain the strong link we found between exposure to air pollutants and ASD meaning autism spectrum disorder. But further research is needed to explore the association between air pollution and mental health more broadly, end quote.
1: So in other words, they found strong correlation, but we still don't know how or even if, uh, I guess, these pollutants are driving these rates of ASD diagnoses.
0: Yeah. And, And so Guo refers to increased vulnerability of developing brains to environmental pollutants. And this is true at multiple levels. Like, for example, lead exposure in an adult, it's a bad thing, right? It's neurotoxic no matter who's exposed. But when it comes to childhood exposures, the ramifications are far more severe because various connections between neurons need to form while the child is growing and learning at school and you know, from their parents. And if lead is disrupting normal neuronal function, it can prevent those connections and literal growth of synapses from happening. Makes sense. Right. But there have also been studies that show reduced T cells and increased B cells in the cord cord blood of newborns, as well as a correlation between disrupted immune system function and uh, neuronal inflammation is also correlated with ASDs. Some studies have honed in on particular brain regions being vulnerable to pollutants, like one study in Mexico City showed um, perturbed prefrontal cortical development correlated with exposure to air pollution or another that showed pollutants may interfere with the MET receptor receptor tyrosine kinase gene. And this is one of those sort of foundationally important receptors on cells that regulate cellular division or or movement or even just development.
1: Which sounds pretty important. There's A (laughs) lot of big words there, but you know, sounds important.
0: Right, for sure. And so there are other studies that characterize what's at least a relationship, whether causal or correlative, between increased exposure to air pollutants and increased instances of autism spectrum disorders, and some of them even hone in on specific pollutants.
1: Well, let's name these names.
0: <laughs> okay, well, so they're the types of names which no one, even many chemists, I suspect, would, uh, would find familiar. But if we're naming names, we're talking about polycyclic uh, aromatic hydrocarbons and diesel exhaust particles.
1: Uh, both of which sound delicious. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. Anyways, um, the group found stronger associations between this type of pollution and autism spectrum disorder during the second and third years following birth.
1: I see. Okay, so not actually during the pregnancy, but once the child is out of the womb and breathing air.
0: Right, and it kind of makes sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like the pregnant mother would have at least some parts of their bodies that work sort of like filters before anything could be absorbed by a developing fetus.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, from the lungs to the immune system to the placental barrier.
1: Ah, yes, there is a placental barrier, huh?
0: There is. And honestly, I don't know as much about the physiology of the placental barrier because it has a sort of unique function as the interface between the mother and fetus. But there's also, you know, the blood brain barrier of the fetal brain.
1: And that's a good point, because honestly, I hadn't thought of the fact that the fetus has its own blood-brain barrier.
0: Yeah, honestly, me neither. And so, you know, while the placenta is really the equivalent of the first responder when it comes to barriers, and, you know, for a long time, it was assumed that the uh, blood-brain barrier remains immature during much of fetal development, but it turns out that studies have suggested that as early as 12 weeks of gestation, there's evidence of a blood-brain barrier protection.
1: Okay, so that's basically the first trimester. That's right. That's really early.
0: Yeah, uh, which is perhaps somewhat encouraging.
1: <laughs> and, you know, it's definitely comforting to a, to a degree. But OK, so consensus, pollution is bad. Yeah, that's that's right. And, uh, you know, newsflash, right? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> OK, so what else are we going to talk about? What else did you look into?
0: Well, so before we go further, I wanted to talk about a sponsor who's sponsoring this episode um, about whom I'm actually pretty happy to briefly chat about.
1: Why Why are you so happy?
0: (laughs) Okay, so this is a friend of mine at Penn from several years back who recently defended her thesis. She worked on super duper nitty gritty intracellular interactions, like how various proteins um, and signaling molecules are organized to enable more complicated biological processes to occur, so at a much more microscopic level than my own work. Anyways, um, Katie has her own shop on Etsy where she provides a bunch of stuff like pins and and makeup bags that are all science themed and really more specifically themed around the kind of science she did. So so there are things like Drosophila um, pins or or fruit flies um, or a variety of sort of chemistry symbols, which are super cool, like the chemistry hazard symbols, which are honestly super cool.
1: Yeah. So I see stuff like skull and crossbones, (laughs) (laughs) a fire sign, a human figure with like a star or something on the inside that looks like it's probably respiratory danger
0: <laughs> yeah 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 so they're, they're super cool um there's also my favorite uh which would only make sense to bonafide uh bio nerds which is a mitochondria with the word powerful written along the bottom um so she also took a picture of the pins um in a petri dish which is a nice little touch
1: <laughs> hey, hey it's not just Bio nerds. I get it. Mitochondria, (laughs) powerful, powerhouse of the cell, right? Well,
0: congratulations. You are a uh, bio nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So anyways, um, the name of the shop is Pico Stitch Threads, and it has um, a super high rating, which is totally unsurprising to me because Katie is a super meticulous person. Her science is extremely impressive, and her shop is also very cool.
1: And we'll link to the shop in the show description and on the website. But one more time, what is the name of the Etsy shop?
0: <laughs> it's Pico Stitch Threads, one word. So P I C O S T I T C H T H R E A D S, which is way harder than I thought it was going to be to read out. Pico Stitch Threads, one word. It's like um, a spelling bee. Or yeah, a little bit. I sort of got lost in the middle of the word. Anyways, and it's on Etsy.
1: Okay, very nice. So now, where were we? We just finished talking about. The Effect of Pollution on Development. So where are we going next?
0: Right. Before we depart from the topic of pollution, there was a guest speaker who came to Penn several years ago who gave a pretty sobering talk about the relationships between genetics, the environment, and the development of autism spectrum disorders.
1: Okay. I think I remember you mentioning that talk a while back.
0: Yeah. So it was in 2017. And so Mark Zilka... Uh, and I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that name uh, correctly, honestly, but Mark Zilka, who's a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the cell bio and physiology department, was giving the talk. And I have to say, it was really excellent.
1: But you also said sobering. So why? Did you feel like you had to up your science game after the talk or oh, something? Totally.
0: <laughs> but it wasn't sobering because of that. Rather, it had to do with a part of the talk devoted to this. Basically, his testing the effects of certain kinds of chemicals that are used in industrial agriculture.
1: Oh, like pesticides insecticides and stuff
0: yeah pretty much um but he began at a very genetic level so as of march um of 2016, one in 68 people are diagnosed with autism and males are 4.5 times more likely to be diagnosed and interestingly this comes up very frequently when i do live stream conversations about biology this frequency was close to zero in the early uh, 1990s so he opens his talk with the question of why this percentage has gone up
1: in other words, why are more people being diagnosed with autism?
0: That's right. So first off, heritability estimates, or how much of this is explained by parental transmission.
1: Which we talked about in the last episode about inheriting, inheriting politics.
0: Yeah, so so those heritability estimates show that autism is between 50 and 80% heritable. So there's very likely at least some, though maybe also quite a bit, of a genetic component to autism. However, there seems to be different potential genetic mechanisms for this, and he highlights that about 41% of the causes are currently unaccounted for, and this includes environmental risks.
1: So environmental risks like exposure to agricultural chemicals.
0: Right, Um, but also for things like infections during pregnancy, which we've discussed briefly in the past. But anyways, these environmental factors can be the thing that might cause someone who might have some... Like genetic predispositions to developing autism, but wouldn't otherwise make the difference and sort of push them over the threshold into developing autism.
1: Like without being exposed to the environmental thing, say pollution, a chemical, or infection, these people probably wouldn't have developed autism.
0: That's what he was saying. And um, he also highlighted that there are hundreds of genetic mutations that have been linked to autism. And importantly, these are what are called uh, quote unquote de novo. Right. Which are basically forms of a gene that weren't inherited from parents, but occurred for the first time ever in um, you know, a family line in a given person.
1: And so why do these de novo mutations occur?
0: Very good question. So, um, well, these are the types of mutations um, that, you know, we're focused on when we talk about like smoking causing cancer or being out in the sun too long. Right. Or exposure to too much radiation. It's when DNA is either changed or damaged in some way.
1: Which is why you should always wear your sunscreen, Thanks. SPF 30 or above.
0: <laughs> Thank you for the uh, for the PSA, Bill. <laughs> and so, um, as we were discussing earlier, our magnificent blood brain barrier actually limits the ability for a pretty wide variety of chemicals to affect the brain very much. But Zilka had the strategy to see if he could find any that could cause changes in the brain that resemble the changes observed from these mutations.
1: The de novo mutations that are associated with
0: autism. That's right. And so basically, the team looked into what kinds of chemicals are broadly expected to be exposed to pregnant women, and then see if some of them target the same biochemical pathways that those de novo mutations have been shown to affect.
1: Almost like the chemicals are sort of acting like the mutations in the brain, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. And, lo and behold, the team found some effects in a handful of biochemical pathways that are associated with the physiology and biochemistry of autism. Namely, synaptic transmission and plasticity, locomotor behavior, and enteric nervous system development.
1: So, yikes. I mean, they actually found some stuff. I mean, were they just really sharp and had the right hypothesis right out of the gates?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, to sort of pull the curtain from blocking the wizard for a second uh, side note here as someone who's contributed to bigger genetics research projects um here's how i bet that study actually went down i bet and i don't know that for sure obviously i'm um, just totally speculating based on how i know other genetics projects um have gone in the past but i bet they started with a much broader hypothesis than something like these chemicals likely specifically influence the biology that just so happens to be central to autism
1: what do you mean a I- broader hypothesis
0: well you know it's just that oftentimes the research story that scientists will sort of tell each other um is sort of like when a band just plays their hits and not the songs on the records that never got that popular they very very rarely um recount the various failures or um, inaccurate hypotheses
1: okay so i see what you mean it's not like people are all that interested in knowing what you thought You know, that turned out to be wrong.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so anyways, as I said, the team did find changes in pathways that included a variety of biology that's known to be altered in autism. One of the most central in terms of the central nervous system um, was uh, development um, and altered synaptic function.
1: Okay, so just to be clear, what exactly do you mean by synaptic function?
0: It's basically just all of the various biology that occurs at the synapses between neurons and glia. Like, you know, if we uh, can recall the first episode of this podcast, uh, synapses are the point of communication between brain cells. It's where one neuron releases a neurotransmitter and another neuron's receptors bind that neurotransmitter. And so we have about 86 billion neurons and about as many glial cells, with each neuron having an average of of about 7,000 synaptic connections per neuron, which, you know, I should say is a generalization that verges on almost absurd because the number varies so much between different types of neurons.
1: Okay. uh, Yeah. Wow. (laughs) I mean, I remember you saying that uh, the neurons in the cerebellum for example, have a ton more synapses than other kinds of neurons.
0: That's right. And so the cerebellum is host to a really special kind of neuron called uh, Purkinje cells, which are incredibly dense with synaptic connections. I've seen an estimate from um, Eric Chudler. And of course, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. But Eric Chudler, who's the executive director of the Center for uh, Neurotechnology at the University of Washington, that suggests that a Purkinje cell can have up to 200,000 synaptic connections.
1: Wow, that is... uh... Several orders of magnitude, (laughs) more than (laughs) 7,000.
0: Right. Um, But, you know, even that is sort of meaningless because different synapses do different things and can have different neurotransmitters, you know, release uh, probabilities. Um, And another estimate that can help us sort of get to the point here is that the human brain is, and again, this is a very loose estimate, but it's estimated to have somewhere between 100 trillion to a quadrillion total synaptic connections.
1: Which is basically a ton of (laughs) synapses. Right.
0: And so, you know, we start out with more synapses than we end up with as adults, as synapses are gradually pruned back during early development. And, you know, once again, I have to stress, those are very loose estimates um, that, you know, just give us an idea of scale. And I highlight this just to make the point that depending on how those trillions of synaptic connections are um, arranged, you can have quite a variety of different patterns of connectivity, which, of course, then translates to very different manifestations of behavior or mood or capabilities from those different patterns of brain connectivity.
1: So, I mean, it's, it seems like you have so many connections which will enable the human brain to be so amazing, but then also these points are vulnerable mm-hmm. that, you know, to change. So I assume here that the team found some of these chemicals that alter the brain in ways that look kind of like how those mutations associated with autism did.
0: That's exactly right. And so interestingly, and I embarrassingly didn't know this before the talk, um, but the brain is home to a sort of abnormally high levels of particularly long transcripts compared to other tissues, um, and, and it's neurons in particular that have these really, really long genes.
1: I knew that before the talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just kidding. Ten oh. points to Gryffindor. <laughs> <laughs> But by long, I assume you mean that they have more A's, T's, C's, and G's, you know, like the, the DNA stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. The DNA stuff. So, So you knew that.
1: Yeah, I knew all of that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so a lot of these um, really long genes and neurons happen to be involved in synaptic function. And so, without going too deep into their research story, I found that, um, or they found that some of these chemicals interfered with a variety of gene expression proteins in ways that they could measure.
1: Okay, so in other words, they found that some of the chemicals that they hypothesize are likely to be exposed to pregnant women, interfered with synaptic function in the kinds of ways that the mutations associated with autism have been shown to.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Well stated. Um, Now, on the topic of synaptic function, autism also has been associated with neuroimmune activity for a while now as well.
1: Okay. So basically the immune system, but in the brain.
0: That's right. And as is probably sort of obvious, the immune system is influenced by a variety of things, but the most direct influence is exposure to pathogens and infection. And studies have shown that infections during the mid-second trimester of pregnancy are, are in particular, are closely associated with autism, you know, likelihood.
1: Okay, you mean if the pregnant woman gets sick with something in the middle of her second trimester?
0: Yeah, yeah, I was very clear there, but yes. Um, And so in their Nature Communications paper, the group highlights that uh, the genetic landscape that's associated with autism spectrum disorders is found to look like reduced expression of genes Uh, that are associated with synaptic transmission, while genes that are associated with immune system activity, and particularly glial cells that resemble immune system uh, cells called microglia, they're elevated.
1: Okay, so I assume that the hypothesis is that some of these chemicals might influence the immune system in some way, and that might have an impact on the developing nervous system. Am
0: I close? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, you know, the group identified six groups of chemicals um, that they found um, caused similar changes in brain structure when compared to what we see among the unique structures associated with autism spectrum disorders. So before you know, getting into the meat of what they found, it's worth noting that much of this science was done in vitro.
1: And by in vitro, that basically means like in a petri dish, outside of a living organism.
0: Yeah, actually in vitro literally translates to in glass.
1: Right. So you're just saying that this research wasn't necessarily done in humans.
0: Yeah, which, I mean, isn't really a problem. Most of biomedical research isn't done in humans. It's just important to be mindful that um, much of their findings should really be considered um, to be some indications of what's likely going on in humans.
1: Gotcha. So not exactly, but probably uh, offering insight. Yeah. So what did they find?
0: So, um, first of all, they found changes in genes that are associated with even more than just autism spectrum disorders. Ugh, like what? Like bipolar disorder, Parkinson's or Alzheimer's diseases, schizophrenia, and even just the genetic signatures of an aging brain.
1: Just to be clear, uh, when they exposed neurons to these chemicals that they were testing— they saw changes in the genetics of those neurons that resembled what they see in the brains of people who have things like Parkinson's disease and bipolar disorder. Exactly. Okay. So it's like, wow. I, I can't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, uh, it actually doesn't stop there. So they tested a bunch of different chemicals. But one of the most striking examples was a class of fungicides that they called QO fungicides. Why QO? It stands for quinone outside.
1: Oh, Okay. Uh, so everyone understands quinone is a kind of chemical shape. Uh, you can have differently shaped molecules, things like methyl groups or amine groups, and quinone is just an-
0: another option. That's right. And so the group highlights um, usage data that shows that QO fungicides are becoming increasingly prevalent on food that's consumed by humans of all ages. They also highlighted um, that at least one of the chemicals in one of their categories, a chemical called pyro. Ugh, I, I knew I was going to not be able to pronounce this word, Pyraclostrobin. I believe Pyraclostrobin. Pretty sure that's what it's called. <laughs> was present in the environment at all levels that affect non-mammalian organs, and was detected at um, high levels on foraging honeybees.
1: Oh, the bees! Okay. <laughs> I've heard bees are sort of the insect equivalent of the canary in the coal mine. <laughs> you know, once things start going wrong with bees, we know we're in
0: trouble. Yeah. I mean, I'm no environmental scientist, but I've been told similar things by a friend of mine who is an environmental scientist. Uh, but yeah, anyways, um, the team went ahead and measured levels of a bunch of these chemicals, including pyraclostrobin, but other ones like uh, phenamidone and <laughs> I'm going to mess this one up too, fenpyroximate, phenpyro- Uh phenoxidone azoxystrobin azoxystrobin i believe (laughs) so the name of these fungicides is just abusive
1: Right, and these chemical names, you know, they sound totally edible, not malicious Yeah, at all, right, right, exactly.
0: Yeah, I know. Um, they sound like, like weapons or something. But, uh, We're but
1: just yeah. really hard spelling the words. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's true. Just <laughs> That's the only reason they exist. Is you have to learn how to spell them. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, so the team measured concentration of these chemicals on samples of things like lettuce and spinach and kale and bok choy and sweet potatoes, cilantro, blackberries, grapes and apples and so on.
1: All the things that I like to eat.
0: Yeah, I know, me too. Um, and so uh, it looks like different chemicals tend to aggregate on different kinds of produce. Like for example, pyraclostrobin was found at pretty high levels on spinach, both fresh and frozen, while isoxystrobin was higher on cilantro than spinach. But then fenpyroximate was highest on apples, pears, and cherry tomatoes.
1: I assume that might be because just different ones are effective against different pests that tend to like different kinds of food, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I assume so. I mean, I'm honestly not sure, but that makes sense to me. Um, And so the team looked over data that were collected by the USDA and FDA between uh, 2008 and 2012.
1: And just so folks outside of the U.S. are on the same page, that is the United States Department of Agriculture and the Food and Drug Administration.
0: Yes, uh Well said. And so um, those are two of the main parts of the federal government that are responsible for evaluating any food or drug that's sold in the United States for potential toxicity. Like, you know, if I have evidence that I've developed a cure for addiction, I have to get the OK from the FDA to sell it in the U.S. as a medical treatment. I'm honestly not as familiar with um, farm regulation by the USDA, but I assume it's you know pretty similar type of relationship. Um, But anyways, so the group found that this cluster of chemicals tended to induce effects on neuronal biology that mimic the genetic changes observed in autism spectrum disorders.
1: Right. So the implication is that pregnant women are likely being exposed to these chemicals through their food, and even pregnant women who are trying to eat as healthy as possible with things like kale and spinach and blackberries or whatever, I mean, they're still getting it.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and so it's pretty freaky. And so the USDA and FDA detected the presence of these chemicals in samples of produce that would be available right in your local grocery stores. And by the way, almost every single chemical in that cluster that they found affected the brain in, in that way had a signature kind of similar to autism spectrum disorder has been increasing in use since they were registered with the EPA. So
1: you're saying that it's not like levels would be expected to go down since 2012.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. So, um, But so here's um, where the collective jaws in the room at the talk all dropped. And so Zilka stated that there are over 80,000 chemicals that are currently approved for use in agriculture, but very few of them have ever been tested for safety with mammals. So there just doesn't appear to be any really good reason to assume that anyone knows just how safe these chemicals that, once again, are detectable on, you know, the healthiest of foods one might want to consume really are for the most vulnerable periods of fetal development.
1: Wow. I mean, could it just be an issue of concentration? Like maybe those chemicals are detected on produce they're at such a low level that they can't have a very significant effect on fetal development. I mean, crossing my fingers. <laughs> Could that be the rationale for uh, you know our agencies not being more stringent?
0: That's a really good point, and he actually brought that up. But you know, the reality is that we really just don't know. And frankly, I'd much rather err on the side of caution than risk any unnecessary exposure to a chemical that's only being used to improve crop yields above above and beyond what's necessary for at least what I perhaps naively presume is to expand profit margins for agricultural companies.
1: That's super crazy. I mean, do you know at least if these chemicals wash off in the sink? I mean, I personally am always you know, sure to rinse everything thoroughly before eating it, no matter what, but not everybody is, and not everybody can be.
0: Yeah, and again, it's tough to know. It could very well be the case that many of these chemicals aren't even water-soluble at all, maybe hydrophobic, in which case it might actually be really difficult to remove them from plant matter using tap water because the water just doesn't capture the chemicals so they stay stuck to the produce until they're in your belly
1: all right well that's that's you know something to feed your dreams for tonight <laughs> and for dinner i'm gonna have some hamburger helper <laughs> yeah i
0: know right it was it was definitely a sobering talk and um you know keep in mind that this was published in nature communications so it's presumably went through a pretty grueling peer review um because that's a pretty prestigious journal and so this is definitely a story that i'm going to keep an eye on for any future updates and also i feel like we Just Side note, (laughs) I feel like we ought to empower the USDA or EPA or whatever to be able to scrutinize these chemicals more thoroughly and make sure at a minimum they're tested in vitro, on on in vitro mammalian cells to see if they induce any significant alterations of biology.
1: Okay. And then, you know, the big question is what about organic produce? I mean, a lot of people say that they, you know, think that the organic food thing is just marketing and doesn't really signify uh, an important difference in how produce is produced. (laughs) Um, But I mean, could this be an area where it really does make a difference?
0: I'm glad you brought that up because I totally would have forgotten about it. Uh, And so in the paper, um, they highlight that both the EPA and USDA did not detect fungicide residues on organically produced foods, suggesting that consuming exclusively organic food may be a possible way to diminish any potentially harmful effects on neurodevelopment in pregnant women.
1: Okay, that's a little bit comforting.
0: (laughs) Yeah, though I bet it's cold comfort to folks who can't exactly shell out for that, you know, price premium on organic foods.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's really messed up. I totally agree. All right. Well, and on that sobering note, (laughs) what is the last topic?
0: Um, Okay, how about we do one or two more quickies? Sure. What's next? Well, it turns out that sleep deprivation is also bad.
1: What <laughs> I, I know, had I know. no idea.
0: <laughs> okay, but it's bad in a specific way that has an effect on the mother. In particular, we're talking about a study that was published earlier this year that showed a relationship between poor sleep quality, specifically in the third trimester, that was correlated with increased risks of postpartum depression.
1: I mean, honestly, no surprise there. If I have poor sleep quality at pretty much any time, uh, you know, I get pretty antsy. I'm short temper, You know, yeah, it's I mean, not great to be around.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I think that's true for probably most people, and definitely the case for me. Particularly since I turned thirty. By the way, side note: I feel like I'm like now quite a bit more sensitive to sleep deprivation than I was like even just four years ago. Oh yeah, thirty, is so old. <laughs> <laughs> like, if I don't get a minimum five um, hours of sleep now, I'm like a complete disaster. I can barely talk. I'm more easily startled and surprised, and I definitely look quite a bit more sleep deprived.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, five hours is not very much. I mean, that's. Welcome to adulthood, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is a terrible deal. I feel like someone should do something about this.
1: (laughs) Uh, Maybe a biologist could do something about it.
0: (laughs) Okay. So anyways, um, there's likely no big surprise that after a month, about um, 25% of women experienced postnatal depression. Um,
1: That's kind of a, a higher number than I expect, but okay, continue. I can imagine that, you know, it's a pretty major change, life change, you know, going on in pregnant women's life.
0: Yeah, Um, but this study showed that there was a variety of correlations from age to the life um, experiences of the mother uh, during pregnancy, which they called, quote, miserable experiences, end quote.
1: Uh, Okay, so I suspect they mean uh, super terrible emotional experiences during pregnancy?
0: Right, and, you know, again, perhaps unsurprisingly, there was a positive correlation between miserable um, life experiences as well as age and postpartum depression. Okay,
1: so age plays a role as well.
0: That's right. But it was younger participants who had miserable experiences who were more likely to experience symptoms of depression.
1: Actually, that is super interesting. I would have thought that it would be older mothers who'd experience more depressive experiences. Right. <laughs>
0: yeah. Right. And uh, they actually speculate that it's possible that older women might be more likely to develop confidence and, and coping mechanisms to apply to their circumstances.
1: Okay. So basically older women, you know, have have, you know, the ability to Know what to expect, and they sort of um, accommodate, and you know can fight back, adapt, again, yeah, in right, sense, in a sense.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so, and that, that's what the authors speculate at least. And um, the group found a few other interesting correlations, um, but the primary takeaway was that poor sleep quality during pregnancy may likely be a risk factor for postnatal depression.
1: So, do they have any idea of why that might be the case?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. The study didn't go into any kind of biochem or molecular bio as, as far as I'm aware, um, but they discussed evidence that poor prenatal sleep dysregulates melatonin signaling and biochemical cycles more broadly.
1: So it just kind of messes things up like hormone release and biological rhythms.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know it's not the most satisfying answer, but I suppose it'll be up to future studies to elucidate that biochemistry. But interestingly, another line of evidence that actually includes a researcher at Penn with whom I'm familiar, uh, Jiang Hong Liu. Corrobor- Jiang
1: Hong Liu. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Liu. Hong <laughs> Liu. <laughs> Liu. <laughs> Liu. Liu. <laughs> 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 yeah, her. <laughs> You're like him. <laughs> uh, corroborates, so, so this work corroborates what we were just uh, discussing, uh, not the pronunciation thing, the sleep thing, and extends it to potential effects on um, the child's sleep patterns.
1: Like, bad sleep quality during pregnancy can translate to bad sleep quality for the child?
0: That's right. And more broadly, that emotional patterns during pregnancy, and particularly the second and third trimester, had outsized influences on child sleep.
1: Oh, so more than just sleep patterns for the pregnant mother. Yeah. Man, not only do pregnant women have to make sure they get enough sleep, but they have to make sure they're happy the entire time, too. (laughs) I mean, pregnant women just can't catch a break
0: oh my god i mean no kidding i mean it's kind of mind-blowing um well you know maybe we can put a pin in this point and get to it after we discuss some of the rest of the topics but anyways this study included 833 kindergartners average age of about six years old and they gave mothers a set of questions that measured happiness and um, scales of depression and then sleep issues among the kids were assessed using something called the sleep subdomain of the child behavior checklist and
1: what did they find
0: so children from mothers who uh, who exhibited elements of depression during the postnatal period. After the kids were born. Right, right. Or during both prenatal and postnatal periods were more likely to have sleep disturbances. On the flip side, increased happiness in the second and third trimesters was associated with reduced sleep issues um, among the kids.
1: Got yeah, it. Yes. So it's kind of like what you'd expect. I mean, I suppose it sort of proves it with a pretty big set of kids and mothers.
0: Yeah, and I mean this is the kind of thing that makes me feel like so much of who we are, or at least um, many of our predispositions at a minimum, are set up by factors that extend so far into the past, before we were born, that it gets a little daunting. So like I have an image of a person's life being like a string of dominoes. Um, as time goes on, more and more dominoes tumble over. The domino that represents the point at which a person even begins to be self-aware and conscious exhibiting meaningful interactions with the world
1: rather than just eating and pooping and sleeping yeah exactly
0: the domino that represents that point maybe around two or maybe three years old and of course it varies quite a bit but that domino would be so far away from the first dominoes that represent the earliest direct influences on who a person you know ultimately becomes and I say direct because I'm not even talking about like the genetic and epigenetic influences derived from generations that had come and gone before the baby was even conceived by direct I mean things like what a pregnant woman eats right or how much sleep she gets or if she gets sick or how emotionally distressed she is let alone whether she drinks alcohol or does any other kind of drug. And then, as domino after domino has tumbled and the baby's ultimately been born, the dominoes continue falling over without the baby having any control whatsoever over the progression of that time. Things like exposure to pollution or growing up in an environment where the baby can't sleep or not getting a varied enough diet, all of those things continue influencing the development of the baby. And then, finally, the baby begins to be able to recognize themselves, maybe even talk. But even then, it's not like they can move away from an area with dense pollution, right? So, Domino after domino falls, and it's not until you have a pretty thoroughly developed adult that they, uh, until they can finally begin, you know, exerting at least some control over the trajectory of their lives, but at that point, so many dominoes have already fallen that I have to wonder just how much change is really possible. Kind of
1: makes having a baby seem daunting. (laughs) like. Every choice parents make can have such a huge impact on a person's early development and therefore affect them for the rest of their lives.
0: Yeah. And, you know, another way I've thought about it is, you know, imagining a boat that's docked on the coast of California pointing towards China. It takes about three weeks, I think, for, for an ocean um, freight ship to get from one coast to the other. And if you think about it, there's a huge difference between the ramifications of turning the wheel that steers the ship you know, five inches to either side early on in the trip compared to when it's almost arrived.
1: Like if you turn the steering wheel right as you're leaving, it's going to result in a much larger deviation from your destination than if you turn the steering wheel the same amount, uh, but once you're already close to the dock in China.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. Like you're going to
1: end up in Australia. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, And so, you know, that's kind of how I think about the outsized impact of these types of factors that we've been discussing in early development. If a developing fetus or newborn is exposed to things like lead or other pollutants, it's like turning the steering wheel um, of the ship so early on in its journey that it ends up so much further away um, from its destination than if, you know, the same person were exposed to those things much later on in life, like turning the wheel once the ship has almost um, arrived.
1: Right. I mean, totally daunting in a similar way. I mean, you're just full of metaphors today. (laughs) Or are they similes? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe one of our listeners is an English teacher. He can tell us <laughs> if it's a metaphor or a simile or an analogy.
0: <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, but anyways, um, yeah, it, it's daunting for me too. Um, and, you know, I should say that there's obviously so much more that we could discuss, but we should probably call it a conversation there. Um, there's obviously way, way more that we could talk about. Maybe we will in a future episode, like uh, research into things like um, what the research says about stimulating a baby after it's born with various types of movements and meaningful interactions with adults or reading to even super young babies, and so on, uh, based on the premise that while we have more synapses at such a young age than you or I do, unused synapses will tend to deteriorate.
1: Sounds good. And I'm going to go buy a dozen air purifiers <laughs> and wash all of my produce in soap.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, good plan. So if you've made it this far and we haven't scared you, uh, scared you away yet, we'd love a nice rating on iTunes if you have the time. It evidently really helps for more human eyeballs to come across the podcast, which would be great.
1: Thanks again for listening.